Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 3. Me and that kid, um, what's-His-Name? I bet if you ever wrote a rap, it would be good. My best friend Zach said, while both of us lay barefoot on opposite ends of my parents' giant brown sectional, I was 11 years old, a middle schooler, and too embarrassed to acknowledge my stint as a member of the S&P crew from Pearsontown Elementary. So unless Zach possessed some bizarre clairvoyance, I had no clue where this was coming from. Yeah, I mean, you listen to so much rap and you know about all the rappers and stuff, I bet if you ever wrote one, it would be dope. Zach had brought this up on several occasions for no apparent reason. I usually ignored him, but he had been oddly persistent as of late. At the time, I was hell-bent on becoming a basketball player and the whole being a rapper thing wasn't exactly in the plans. But I did have this nagging feeling. What if Zach had a point? Every summer between the ages of 9 and 15 years old, I went to sleepaway camp in Hendersonville, North Carolina, in the mountains near Asheville. It was a Jewish camp, and though I had almost no interest in religion, I had met a great group of friends and always looked forward to going back. The summer after I turned 11, I finally convinced the Kelly Kapowski of Camp Judea to be my girlfriend after a two-year crush. Though she lived not far in Maryland, I barely ever saw her outside of camp and rarely spoke to her because long-distance calls cost money back then. The relationship made the summers more special to me, and at camp, I was the man. The truth of our relationship was that it wasn't exclusive as much as I wanted it to be. When we were both in 7th grade, she admitted to me semi-apologetically that she had a boyfriend at home named Robert and that he was a rapper, something she seemed to almost brag about. A rapper, I thought. Fuck that guy. I can do that anytime I want to. I was 12. I was jealous. And Zach's words began to ring over and over in my head, echoing like the name Manny Mota in the movie Airplane. I bet if you ever wrote a rap, it would be good. I bet if you ever wrote a rap, it would be good. Determined to get the girl, I decided to find out if Zach's theory had any merit. I wasn't going to let some punk-ass Maryland Bama steal my girlfriend. I was from Dirty Durham, and we didn't play that shit. Armed with the determination to be better than everyone at everything to hide my self-esteem issues, coupled with the recent angst and anxiety caused by my parents perfectly timed so that I would be the only child of five still at home to deal with a divorce, I grabbed a cassette single out of my giant plastic TJ Maxx bag with the faded red logo. I got a pencil and notebook and without even considering how, I went to work. A rapper needs the right beat. I chose the instrumental I got to have it by Ed OG and the Bulldogs. It had a slower tempo and was a good choice for a battle record, particularly fitting for the occasion. I sat in my tiny bedroom in the townhouse in Woodcroft that my mother was renting after the divorce. My dark brown wooden desk barely fit in the room, but for the first time, I was happy that it was there so I could have a real workspace. I pondered what to write and sat silently in deep concentration until something manifested. A few hours passed, but it felt like time had stopped momentarily. Eventually, I rose out of the ashes like a phoenix. No longer was I an inexperienced novice. I had something. I was a rapper. Rapper, rapper. Hello, everybody. Well, I'm back again. Five foot ten and looking kind of slim. I tell you, I'm young, and if you say that's it, you'll have my size tens up your ass like a constipated shit. 
The rhyme I might kick will make you move But for now I think it's time to run it down smooth I'm a young man with my own share of peach fuzz Just like KMD but I wish that each was a bill Not just a funky black hair So I could live fat and stop living fair I buy a house that's fit for a king So I could just chill and listen to the birds sing Fortunately I've forgotten the rest Not exactly the most aggressive of sonnets But I had to crawl before I could walk I never let anyone hear that verse, but I knew that I liked the way it felt to write it and say it out loud. Despite the hours it took, penning it felt effortless and I loved fantasizing about being in the middle of a cypher, on stage, or being interviewed by Dr. Dre and Ed Lover on Yo! MTV Raps. I'd even practice reciting it quietly in the mirror, perfecting my rapidy rap-like hand gestures for effect. Soon I felt like I looked and sounded cool when I did it, and if I was gonna win my girl back I would have to let people hear my rhymes. My only problem was figuring out how to get started on my quest to become an MC. Fortunately, it happened almost by mistake. Or was it fate? Yo Mario, kick a rap! Someone shouted from one of the last few rows on the school bus. Mario simply smiled and said nothing. Come on man, kick that rap! They said again. What rap? I thought. Mario raps? Mario barely talks. Just then, in the blink of an eye, Mario began mumbling to another student who started to beatbox. And after a few seconds, almost sounding rehearsed, Mario, in fact, began to rap. No, I mean Mario really began to rap. We weren't even in our teens, but I swear his voice was almost as deep as a young Barry White. It was confident and virile, and the kid could flow like nothing I'd ever heard in person before. I marveled at his delivery and cadences. It was as if he studied Big Daddy Kane and had somehow figured out how to sound influenced, yet not duplicated. When I got off the bus at my father's house, the only thing I could think about was figuring out how to form an allegiance with Mario. I barely knew him, but I was sure that if I wanted to get to the next level as an MC, he would be the guy who could get me there. Mario was a skinny, quiet kid who used to wear his hair in a high-top fade, or box as we used to call it. I knew him from the neighborhood where I grew up, where my dad still lived then. He and I had played basketball together in school and around the hood, and though I didn't know much about him, I was determined to pick his brain. Specifically, I was itching to find out how he became so proficient lyrically. Once seventh grade came around and the hormones fully set in, any male that considered themselves cool traded band class for chorus. After all, that's where the girls were. Each day the teacher would let us bring in records to play as we warmed up for class. This meant that we'd do stupid little dances in unison which were somehow supposed to prepare us to sing enthusiastically, but usually only succeeded in mortifying us. Again, we were only there to look at girls, not do the electric slide. One day Mario brought in the 45 Kings 900 number record, most popularly known as the theme music for the Ed Lover dance on Yo! MTV Raps. Midway through some arm-raising, line-shimmy of a warm-up, I had an idea of how to strike up a conversation with Mario and find some common ground. The next day when the bell rang, I made my way towards him and tapped him on the shoulder. Hey, what's up, man? I said. He seemed ready to listen. Um, crazy question. Any chance I could borrow that 900 number record so I could dub it? I wrote a rap to it and I want to see how it sounds. Yeah, that's no problem. You gonna be on the bus today? Mario replied. No, but I will be tomorrow. I'm going to my dad's after school, I said nervously. He agreed to let me walk home with him and my anxiety began to settle. My strategy had worked and I was pleased. It gave me confidence. 
And that night, I wrote another rap with that beat in my head, just after letting my dad know that I was going to be staying at his house the following night. Wait here, he said, as he went inside his house and I stood in his unkempt front yard with anticipation. In a matter of seconds, Mario reappeared with the record in his hand and gave it to me. Here you go. You said you wrote a rap to it, though? Here was my chance to tell a master about what I was up to. Yeah, um, I just started rapping and I really loved this beat. I wanted to see how it would sound. Oh yeah? Mario said, showing moderate signs of enthusiasm. We should do a song together. You know I rhyme too. Of course, man. I heard you on the bus the other day. It was dope. Thanks, G, Mario replied. Even though I'd been working to get into his sphere, I couldn't believe I had piqued his interest enough to be invited to collaborate with him. I had to imagine he was the best rapper in school, so this was a real honor. It went beyond that even. After a few amateur recording sessions together, we decided we had enough chemistry to make it official. 3D was born. Two hype, rhythmatic educators of equality, living deaf, dope, and diverse. That was the name we went with. Back in 89, it was cool to have a rap name or group name that was a mnemonic device. In those days, being a rapper was all about creativity, about originality rather than fitting in, and not about doing what everyone else was doing. Those of us who participated in hip-hop would do anything to stand out from the pack. To copy or bite was seen as mortal sin. Mario went with the moniker IceMD or Internationally Cool Ebony Microphone Damager. I went with Juicy J, which stood for and meant nothing in particular, but came from a stupid nickname one of my classmates gave me in fourth grade when he thought I said my name was Juice during roll call instead of Josh. Juicy J never felt right, but it was fine for then. Hell, I was just excited to be there. Mario and I went on to make four full-length albums, and together we explored, witnessed, and learned hip-hop. We had no producer or any means for that matter of getting original music for our lyrics, so we either used instrumentals from other rap songs or we made our own using what was referred to as pause tapes. The art of the pause tape is one that dates back to the beginning of hip-hop and is a thing of the past, but let me explain. Let's say there's a song you want to rap over that has no instrumental but that has a small section at the beginning or end with no vocals. If you don't have a sampling device or drum machine, you can create an instrumental by using a dual cassette recorder or box. You'd put the original song on deck one and a blank cassette in deck two with record and pause both pressed down. When you get to the instrumental piece of the song you want to sample, simply unpause the blank tape when that section begins, then pause it on beat when the instrumental section ends. Rewind the original song and repeat roughly 20 or 30 times, depending on the length of your song. The key is to try and time the pausing and unpausing so that the beat is fluid. The caveat is that that is impossible. Before digital readouts on audio devices, we'd have to loop samples by ear, but it never worked. Our music sounded choppy, low quality, and offbeat. The silver lining was that the imperfect instrumentals forced Mario and me to memorize our lyrics, improve our breath control, and master our deliveries. If what we were planning on recording wasn't nailed down ahead of time, the substandard beats we were using would be problematic, so we got good as a necessity. Once we had beats, we needed to record. Our resources were limited, but thanks to Mario's ingenuity, we had our method. Much like the beat making process, we used two boxes. Box one would have our instrumental, while box two would have a blank cassette. While the beat played into the left speaker of box two, we'd rap into the right. This was back in the days when the record button would allow the radio to act as a giant dictaphone. And though the levels were never equal, we did our best. 
The logistics of recording songs were challenging. While Mario's verse would come to an end, I'd ease my way towards him and begin rapping as I'd thrust my face towards the speaker. And when he was done, he'd have to stop, drop, and roll out of my way. This makeshift recording process also strengthened our performances because we only had one shot. And just like it was in the 1950s, if we made a mistake, we'd have to take it from the top. Eventually, we graduated to $3 auxiliary microphones from Radio Shack. Though it quelled the need for acrobatics, it actually made the song quality worse. Every word sounded muffled, every P sounded like you had just hit the microphone with your hand while blowing into it, and the volume levels were wonky. It was chaotic, but it worked. Throughout the pause tape era, Mario also taught me a lot about songwriting. He showed me how to count bars, aka lines of a verse, and measures so that what I wrote would coincide with each beat. The knowledge I gained was priceless, and at 12 years old, we were writing songs like professionals. Aside from music, Mario and I shared a passion for basketball. When middle school ended, we were both still holding on to our hoop dreams. We attended High Point University basketball camp, which allowed prospective high school ballers to match their skills and compete with other teams from around North Carolina, where ball is life. We were split up by skill level and age group and were able to learn our future coaches' plays and our future teammates' personalities. At team camp, we met Phil. Phil had a moderate interest in basketball and a huge passion for all things music. We had gone to Pearson Town together but never shared any classes or had the opportunity to become friends. We attended different middle schools and would see each other at sporting events or at the mall wearing competing starter jackets. Phil was skinny, a bit awkward back then, and wore a stylish high-top fade like Mario and the majority of our rap heroes. He was far nicer than he looked, and we always joked that he had the face of a Doberman pincher. He was silly by nature, but his music knowledge was serious. Somehow rap music and basketball have always gone hand in hand. I mean, just look at how many NBA players want to be rappers. Between games and practice, we'd sit in our hot, concrete, air-conditionless dorm rooms at High Point University and talk music. During a conversation about whether Kane was better than Rakim or vice versa, it came out that Mario and I were rappers. Inevitably, we were asked to showcase our talents for the older guys, and it couldn't have gone over better. The initial audition sparked daily, impromptu performances, and as word spread, we began rapping for students from other schools as well. Because we were rapping for sophomores, juniors, and seniors, all of whom we considered cooler than us, we gained a huge boost in confidence and in our music. After one rap session where Mario and I outshined some of the older guys, Phil approached us. He wanted in. You guys got a DJ? He asked. Well, no, but we're looking for one, Mario replied. I could be y'all DJ, Phil said confidently. You got turntables? I asked. No, Phil said, but I could get some. When we returned from basketball camp, Phil came to my mom's house toting a few pieces of vinyl and auditioned for us. With no fancy sound system, all we had for him to use was a straight-arm turntable that sat atop our large stereo console. We were impressed with Phil's scratching skills and knew he was just what we needed to solidify our crew. After a positive nod to one another and a round of dap, rapper handshake, we hired Phil on the spot. And though to this day I can't make sense of the story behind his name, Phil chose DJ Brorab as his moniker. In the early days of hip-hop music, a DJ was essential for any rap group that wanted to be taken seriously. His job was simple, provide the music when the rappers performed and add scratches to the recordings and live performances. 
Except for a few shows where Phil had to borrow other people's DJ equipment to back us up, we never really had a job for him. But he was always loyal and bragged about Mario and me as MCs. And though it took until the following Christmas, Bro-Rap finally got his turntables. 3D rode the ever-changing wave of hip-hop music for about three years. We dipped our toes in the proverbial pool of each trend and our collection of songs was wildly incohesive. As one could have guessed from the two E's, we started out as self-proclaimed educators of equality because of our multi-racial makeup. We loved groups with a message like Public Enemy, KRS-One, and X-Clan, and wished we could have been a part of the all-star cast of self-destruction. But once positivity went out of style, we became sheep and followed. We cursed a lot and made sexual references that we couldn't confirm the accuracy of and tried our best to find ourselves. After a few talent shows, name change attempts, and a realization that Mario and I had different visions for our rap careers, 3D broke up and I was left to stand on my own two feet. Like a divorce, something I knew about all too well, we vowed to have joint custody of Bro-Rab. Within weeks of 3D breaking up, I shortened my name to Juice because it sounded far less old school. At this point, I was self-assured and determined. Rap was part of who I was and I knew it was my true calling. I did whatever I could to rap any and everywhere and I won a contest at Sportsman's Lounge, a club located near Fayetteville Street Projects where I stuck out like a green hat with an orange bill. That's where I met Rob, who invited me to start a new group with him. The two of us called ourselves Crossbreed, and Rob chose the name Macadamian because his personality was somewhere between a big nut and the devil. Crossbreed lasted only a year, but helped to expose me to different circles and gain more notoriety as a local MC. When I was 16, Rob moved to Wilmington to go to college, and I was solo yet again. As a rapping white boy, I stood out, but that never seemed to matter. Maybe because my partners were black, or maybe because I was good enough for my hip-hop minority status to be overlooked. In any case, I wasn't ready to go solo. Since I'd had two failed groups already, I decided I'd seek a partner out, but wouldn't settle until I found the perfect one. In the meantime, I'd have to hold it down by myself and find any way I could to get myself to the next level. Before the days of streaming music, when MTV was still pretty new, radio was all important to any kid getting a pop culture music education. Back when Mario and I became friends, he had turned me on to NC State's college radio station, WKNC 88.1 FM. Because college stations aren't forced to follow any playlist guidelines, they're often where you can go to hear music that's less popular or underground. This is where we would hear all the rappers and groups that were popular in North Carolina, but unsigned nationally. Groups like Yag Fu Front, 7th Tribe, and 2 Thurl became my heroes, even more than the famous rappers because I looked at their positions as slightly more attainable. And yes, I aimed to get in front of those DJs. Getting my music played on 88 was step one, and I cared about that even more than getting a record deal. Amongst the sea of local male groups heard on college radio, there was a female duo known as Two Sentimental Queens. The group consisted of Sister Rhonda and Sister Von T. I was tipped off that the former worked at a jewelry store in South Square Mall, and I was determined to meet her. Already comfortable in my jester-like sense of humor, I went to the mall by myself, waited until the jewelry store was empty, and walked in singing one of the Sentimental Queens reggae-influenced songs. My name and a name, my name and a name, my name is Rhonda. My name and a name, my name and a name, my name is Von T. Two sentimental queens coming at you saying peace. What? What's up, my brother? What's your name? 
Rhonda said after her initial shock and laughter. I'm Josh. I heard you on KNC. I heard you worked here and I wanted to let you know I was a fan of your music. Well, thank you, sir. I do appreciate that. She said with a grin, all the while sizing me up. What? You a rapper or something? Yeah, I rhyme. Oh, you rhyme, huh? Why don't you kick a little something? I was fearless and spitting a quick verse for Durham's Sentimental Queen was an easy task. She was impressed, if not by the lyrics, at least with the novelty of a rapping white boy from Durham. The city was roughly 50% black and my experience taught me that the majority of the other 50% was made up of real southern white people. The kind whose parents used the N-word and probably had an uncle in the clan. I was the son of New York expats and raised a bit differently, a bit of an anomaly for a white person. Rhonda could tell, and Rhonda was impressed. That started a new routine. I took to stopping by the jewelry store to speak with her often and she became my hip-hop big sister as she was to many others around town. She introduced me to local rappers, DJs and dancers and gave me advice. It kept getting better. Eventually, she asked me to perform in her local music showcase, The Rap Summit, and even introduced me to a producer who could produce and record my first official song that I could perform in the show. It wasn't just the introductions and opportunities that Rhonda was heaping on us like treasure, though. It was also the work. Through the weekly rehearsals for the show, Bro Rab and I got cool with much of the local rap scene. We made friendships with established artists that translated into respect for us as performers. Slowly but surely, we were gaining notoriety. We performed under the name Crossbreed, and as I rapped, Bro Rap scratched like a pro and cued the music perfectly. No one knew us before the show, but afterwards, we were local stars. We didn't even have our driver's licenses. Because I was hesitant to introduce myself as Juice, it was just something stupid that I made up in middle school. People would just call me Crossbreed, assuming that it was my name. I didn't like that either, but Juice never fit. I didn't even like saying it, but what was I going to do, go by Josh? That wasn't dope, but I had no idea what I could change it to, not even a thought. I had to come up with something, but I couldn't force it, it had to be organic, it had to be me. The summer after the rap summit would be the last time I did anything relating to camp. My head was so deep into hip-hop that I couldn't waste time hanging out with friends and pretending to be an observant Jew. If it wasn't hip-hop, I wanted no part of it. Still, I'd have been crazy to miss that last hurrah that came in the form of a six-week trip to Israel with the friends I had known since I was a kid. It was designed to be the culmination of years of convincing us to be Zionists and the first outright attempt to get us all to move to Israel as adults. The chances of selling me on moving there were about as realistic as getting me to cut off all my fingers and eat them, but I knew it would be the last time I would see all of my friends from that world. I was curious about seeing Israel, so I went, even though I knew it wouldn't help me become a better rapper. While in the Middle East, feeling out of place yet, believe it or not, at peace, I sat on a bench under a tree one evening staring out at the sun setting over Jerusalem. Though I had never really been religious, Israel was inspiring, almost otherworldly. Even a Jewish kid couldn't help but be inspired after a dusty walk that ended with the tour guide telling us it was the same path they carried a cross-nailed Jesus on. I sat there alone and listened to Das FX's Dead Serious album on my yellow sports walkman that I'd gotten from my bar mitzvah a few years prior. Riggedies and diggities filled my eardrums as I peered out on what looked like a movie set. The light was different than anything I had ever seen. It even felt different. I didn't know if it was the reflection from the light stone or perhaps my proximity to God. 
I wasn't sure if I could actually see Mount Sinai, but out of nowhere, it felt as though I received a gift like Moses getting the Ten Commandments. As the music blared into my ears, I became hyper-focused on the lyrics. I thought I heard, They call me what's-his-name and rap's my game. Ask me again and I'll tell you to say, what the hell did he just say? I thought to myself as I feverishly pressed rewind and heard it again. Oh my god, is that really what he's saying? I had to listen one last time. There was no internet, so the rewind button was my only source of reference. But on the third go-round, I heard it properly. What's his name was actually Puddentane, which I've since learned is something kids used to say on the playgrounds back in the days. Thanks, genius.com. But at that point, the real lyrics no longer mattered because the seed had already been planted and the idea had struck a nerve. What's his name? I thought. I couldn't get it out of my head. They call me what's his name and raps my game. What's his name? I repeated it to myself out loud over and over. I could be what's his name? I thought as the sheer excitement gave me the chills. But why? What does that mean? It had come in a flash, but it made all kinds of sense on second thought, too. Although I was gaining a little fame in Durham, no one ever knew what to call me. I was always just the rapping white boy or a crossbreed, which made no sense. At the time, it was very hip-hop to spell things phonetically and group a series of words into one. I wanted my name to be only one word, so after a few minutes of figuring out the potential spelling in my mind, I decided on W-H-U-T S-I-Z-N-A-I-M It made perfect sense and to me it sounded like a famous rapper. And what else would you call the one rapping white boy in a sea of black rappers whose name nobody knew? You know. What's his name? What's his name? What's his name? What's his name?